Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Volts. With me, as always, my partner in crime, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, buddy? I'm doing good, Foltz. How are you, my friend? I'm doing good. I'm in a lot of getting in a lot better spirits. Um, you know, trying to just, we're all adjusting everything that's going on in the world and everything to that nature. But, uh, you know, we're going to try, we're going to put that behind us for tonight. And Subtle Beast is going to get back to roots. What do you think about that, Steve? I like it. It's an escape. So for the next hour or whatever it comes out to be and hang out with us. Yeah, and just have a fun time. So what we're going to do tonight, and basically the reason that we decided to roll with this, because with uh, you know the state of the world and everybody, everybody being locked down and... You know, it was crazy that the um, what the Pentagon released or or gave credit to um, the DeLong, D- Tom DeLong's project, yeah, right? Academy of the Stars, right? And 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 they're and what they're involved in, and that just kind of like skipped across the water. Well, it was like white noise almost. Yeah, the messed up part about it is the DeLong and his uh, camp released a video for that uh i believe it was the navy correct the navy had and they and the longs people said it was declassified so here we are uh over a year later now the navy put it up on their website and verified and confirmed that they declassified it but this was the first time that it was declassified. So it was on its way to becoming declassified when DeLong got a hold of it, but it wasn't officially declassified at that point. But it got so much more attention when DeLong did it, and I believe it's probably just uh, uh, the state of the world right now. But if you follow our podcast, you know how I think. So let me just put a little spin on it. So if the, if, if the Pentagon is going to come out or the, or the Navy is actually going to confirm or declassify this as a quote-unquote UFO, then uh, if you've listened to our podcast on uh, where we covered Project Bluebeam. Oh, I was just thinking about that this week. Yeah, I mean, uh, and so have I because look how quickly they were able to get everyone to stay indoors with the uh, quote-unquote pandemic. Um and real quick, if you're not familiar with Blue Beam, they're going to beam whatever deity you believe in onto the skies. Right. And it'll be projected into your mind in, in your particular language. And along with that, the government will use like deep state, like super deep state. Like deep state is like nothing compared to what's going on in these operations, but they have like a, this big boomerang. Um, and it's not, it's not the TR three B if that's what you're thinking, but it's this real big, um, Stephen Greer talks about it a lot in his documentary, big boomerang menacing looking thing. And what they say is that they can do this with such accuracy that it 99.9% of the population is going to believe it unless you investigate or listen to podcasts such as subtle beast or you follow in Stephen Greer's footsteps and follow his work um the knowledge is here and you know we've had a lot of people 
um, you know, may say that uh, well, the, the stuff you guys talk about on your podcast, it's kind of crazy. Uh, but is it now? Because uh, are we the tinfoil hat people? I don't Does, think. Yeah, doesn't it seem a lot more real now? It does. So if I were to tell you, Fultz, in November of last year, hey, there is going to be a worldwide lockdown that's going to last for two and a half months and continue going. I would have said, if that's going to be the case, probably excluding maybe the United States, I'd be like, that they're not going to lock us down. Right. And lo and behold, uh, we, you know, these are the types of, the, uh, like our podcast and information of the like are the types of information that in these times or even not, you need to be seeking out the information. It, it makes me think of, uh, what was it, the movie 2012, where Woody Harrelson was this, they projected him as a wackadoo conspiracy theorist, but yep. he was the one that was right. He was the one that actually, in the end, saved John Cusack. So, spoiler alert, <laughs> saved John Cusack. But, uh, yeah, so, again, we wanted to get back to Roots tonight and uh, have some fun. And me and Steve, we created our own personal list of, like, six different UFO incidents that are not your typical ufo experiences everyone knows roswell uh everyone might be familiar with uh you know randlesham forest which they call the uh area 51 or the um of uh of the uk if i'm not mistaken but uh so yeah we've created a list and we're gonna kick it off and we hope you enjoy it now here we go now the first one on our list <coughs> is uh, it's an incident that goes by the name of the uh, thomas mantell incident so, and it's a turning point for alien research is what they say. Now, on July 8th of 1947, an unidentified flying object crashed near Roswell, New Mexico. The official Air Force explanation was that it was a weather balloon that had come down. 183 days later, another weather balloon would result in a crash. Now, this time of an Air Force pilot in hot pursuit. Weather balloons in the 1940s were very dangerous, it seems. Now, the Thomas Mantell incident is telling indeed. Now, the incident is important in UFO history. At the time, arguments related to UFO sightings tended to lean in the direction of a fad. But some believe that the sighting of UFOs were delayed traumatic reactions that followed World War II. Now, others believe the sightings to be the effect of mass hysteria that were related to the Cold War and to McCarthyism. Now, still, others believe that the increase of UFO sightings are the result of human advances in aerospace. Now, this belief holds that two things are happening. Number one, the rapid acceleration of human achievement has gotten the attention of superior life forms, which are scouting the planet more often than in times past. Or two, technology has allowed humans to better record alien encounters. Now, whatever the case, the Thomas Mandel, in Mantel incident, it's important in many ways. Now, Captain Thomas F. Mantell, he was a seasoned pilot. Now, having entered the Air Force during World War II, he had clocked more than 2,000 hours time, and he had participated in the Battle of Normandy, which makes him one bad mother. Most importantly, the UFO was not one which Captain Mantell just happened upon, but rather had been spotted independently by people on the ground. Now, Mantell was one of four Kentucky Air National Guard pilots initially responding to a radio communication to investigate a large, circular object about 300 feet in diameter. Now, although ground witnesses had been watching the object for nearly half an hour, once the F-51D Mustangs arrived, it suddenly shot upwards and at an incredible speed. 
One pilot had just left off the pursuit because he was low on fuel. The remaining three pilots took their aircraft into a steep climb into the pursuit of the object. Mantell's wingman, Lieutenant Albert Clements, left off the chase because his oxygen supply was low. And Lieutenant Hammond left off at 22,500 feet. Mantell continued the chase and ultimately fell from the sky, crashing near Franklin, Kentucky. That's high in a Mustang. Yeah, big time. I've been up to 12.5 in a jump plane. 22.5 in a Mustang would be really high. Jeez. Now, this case is especially powerful because it was the first conformed instance wherein a pilot giving a pursuit of an unidentified flying object crashed during the event. Nationwide, people became fixated on the fact that Mantell crashed while chasing a UFO. Some believed he was shot down by advanced technology. No one suspected pilot error. Now, although the Air Force initially stated that the pilot the pilots were giving chase to Venus. They eventually provided a better story. Captain Thomas Mantell flew too high. He ran out of oxygen and passed out at the controls. This caused his aircraft to spiral out of control and crash. The object he and the other pilots were chasing was a Navy Skyhook high-altitude balloon. Of course it was. This had to be the explanation because Venus was too small in the sky to fit the story or the official story complete. Yet, this explanation fails to explain why a seasoned combat pilot would have mistaken a weather balloon for something worth chasing to high altitude. It fails to explain the object circumference provided by eyewitness on the ground from Owensboro to Irvington, Kentucky, nor does it explain the descriptions of witnesses at the Army Airfield in Clinton County, Ohio, who were among those calling for a closer look when the aircraft were assigned to task. Now, the most important contribution of the incident, perhaps, is the alien research resulting from Thomas Mantell incident in public support. Now, UFO sightings are on the rise. Just a few months earlier, one crash landed in New Mexico desert. Now, a UFO appeared to have been shot down as the U.S. Air Force pilot. That is unacceptable. The public became interested in UFOs to a much stronger degree than they had before. Now, instead of the idea that alien visitors would be friendly, the possibility that they could have less than friendly motives for visiting planet Earth arose. Now, suddenly, UFOs were no longer the fancy of a few, but the concern of many. Today, interest and belief in life outside the solar system continues to grow. Some still believe Thomas Mantell was shot out of the sky and that extraterrestrial visitors are not planning a friendly visit. Others believe that alien races with an interest in Earth are many and that some are friendly, some less so. Whatever the case, the 1948 Thomas Mantell incident has got the attention of many. Now, that's an incredible story. Well done, Foltz. I'll tell you the part of that story that I liked. I mean, obviously, I like. I was about to say, excuse me. But my favorite part of that story is uh, number two. So, or no, number one, the rapid acceleration of human achievement has gotten the attention of superior life forms, which are scouting the planet more often than in times past. Right. So that would that, and that would align directly with the dropping of the atom bomb. Right. Grabbing the attention of these extraterrestrials or these interdimensional beings, if you will. They're like, uh uh-oh, someone else learned how to split the atom, let's investigate. Subtle Beast has discussed that exact theory often, and we've expanded it to multiple dimensions, not even just from our uh, planetary system. Exactly. Parallel universes included. So I love that. Also with the the Mantell, I think that one was on uh, 
Project Blue Book. Yes, it certainly was. I think it might have been like a season opener. Yeah, I think it was the very beginning. And the very beginning of that episode, they show the the plane flying after what it, what it appeared to be a light. It wasn't a weather balloon. No. That's just the official story. But uh, they did a fantastic job at showing you a visual of what it was that Foltz was just explaining. So if you get a chance, check that out. Yeah, they got two seasons of it going right now. And uh, the one lead investigator on it, Dr. Alan Hynek, I mean, regardless of what the official Project Blue Book uh, statings were, he has come forward afterwards and said, look, they were pressured into making a lot of the claims that they did. And he stands by that. You know, most of the cases that they investigated were either extraterrestrial or clearly just UFO. Just didn't know. If it, one, another thing that uh, struck me out is the second season came out. I looked at the titles from the first and second season, and Subtle Beast has done probably 40% of, of the same shows. Oh, yeah, because, uh, I mean, Project Blue Book within itself, I mean, there's so many great stories in there. And, the, and intertwining with uh, you know, uh, the government coming in and giving uh, false information on things. And it, dr- it drove one man to insanity to the point where he wasn't sure if he was still right or not. And, you know, he ended up in a mental facility and all at the hands of, of the government of a guy named Richard Doty, who has so far or since that time has come out and has been working for good and, well, I don't know if he's working for good, but he's been giving better explanations on camera to Dr. Greer in his documentaries. Yeah. Remember, he was talking about that, that he used to do that, and then he, he used to personally uh, carry bags of cash to uh, CIA agents and planted all throughout the news. And he was like, no, I'm not going to name any names, but <coughs> Anderson Cooper, I'm sure is one. And, <laughs> I mean, come on. He's probably the other. This guy used to host a show 20 years ago called the mole. I mean, how much, and he, what his mother was a Vanderbilt or, or something like that. Right. I don't trust him. And his nose disappeared during Sandy hook thing, which we won't get into that, but green screen. So, Steve. <laughs> All right, let's UFOs. do another one, man. Let's do another one. Don't UFO take me down sign. the rabbit hole, Steve. You know it'll end bad. I, I started. I'll, I'll take credit for starting you on that one. All right, all right. All right, this one's coming out of uh, Brazil. Uh, I'm going to pronounce it Virginia. Uh, you could pr- probably pronounce it uh, Virginia. But uh, so the Virginia UFO incident is the name given to a series of events involving the alleged sighting and capture by the Brazilian military of an extraterrestrial being in Virginia, Brazil. This was in 1996. Such reports were first broadcast on the Sunday TV show Fantastico and gathered media coverage worldwide, including an article in the Wall Street Journal. It has since become well-known case in modern Brazilian ufology. The Brazilian government has officially denied any claims of being involved in the capture of extraterrestrial biological entities or EBEs, but some theorists claim otherwise, accusing the government of a cover-up. For some, the lack of reliable sources is evidence against its actuality. The testimony of unnamed uh, anonymous official individuals are frequently featured. UFO investigator Kevin D. Randall writes that this case is as complicated as any other UFO case in the field. Randall notes that there's a lack of physical evidence supporting the case and adds, in fact, we've been unable to verify much of anything. 
UFOlogist Roger Lear of Ventura, California, describing interviews with local witnesses in UFO crash in Brazil, surmised that, that there were two creatures. Allegedly, one had, be, had been injured, and both were taken to a local medical clinic. The doctors and nurses in the clinic described the creatures and reported unusual occurrences, some apparently paranormal in nature. Which you would think if they were talking, maybe telepathy, yeah, telepathically, that they could they could consider that paranormal. In Absolutely, nature. that would be paranormal to a human being that doesn't have ESP. As a podiatrist, Lear was particularly interested in their feet. The story ends with the removal of the creatures by military personnel. Of course, it does. I doubt that if an alien, if we if we had an alien, that I would be overly interested in his feet. But I'm not a podiatrist. That's true. I mean, that would probably be the last thing that I just... I'd be trying to mess with his brain. Or, yeah. I mean, if, or if it was talking to me telepathically, I'd start up with some questions. You know what I'm saying? I'd be like, do you want a drink? <laughs> According to media reports, the creature was first sighted by three women ranging from 14 to 22 years old. Sisters Lillian and Valquira, Fatima Silva, and their friend... Katia Andrade. They allegedly saw the creature in the afternoon of, Je- of January 20th, 1996. A biped about 1.6 meters or just over 5 feet tall with a large head and a very thin body. It had V-shaped feet. It had brown skin and large red eyes. It seemed to be wobbly or unsteady and the girls assumed that it was injured or sick. The Silva sisters said they fled and told their mother they had seen the devil. The woman did not believe them until she went there to the area where they had allegedly seen the creature and smelled a strong ammonia-like odor and found nothing but its footprints and a dog sniffing around the place. After relating their tale to family and friends, rumors began to spread throughout the city regarding UFO sightings and alien creatures being abducted by the military forces. Two days later, another creature was allegedly found lying along a road. Three military trucks were supposedly sent to retrieve it. A similar creature was reportedly seen at the local zoo by the zoo's janitor. In the following months, three animals mysteriously died. Oralina and Yuruko de Fritas, owners of a farm in the town, reportedly saw the UFO hovering over their cattle. Oralina was attracted by the sudden agitation of her animals and spotted the flying object after she went out to check on what was disturbing them. The object supposedly hovered over their field for over 40 minutes. Wow. In regard to the wasteland creature, an official inquiry led by the Brazilian military authorities concluded in 2010 that the Silva sisters had actually come across a homeless, mentally unstable man nicknamed Modinho, covered in mud, and that the military trucks were operating in their normal schedule that night. The military also stated that the alien seen in the hospital was an expectant dwarf couple. That is the stupidest explanation that I've ever heard. And you know what? The sad part is so many people were like, see, we told you see, we told you it was an expectant dwarf couple. That was that was what they saw in there. And those those military trucks that came 
in immediately they were scheduled already to drive that route and if i was that homeless guy i'd be like yo i'm not the devil right (laughs) (laughs) these three sisters that no 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 they it wasn't an alien it was a homeless man covered in mud ah yes now it makes more sense you know what brazil's worse at covering stuff up than america (laughs) yeah i would have to say on that well let's take a trip from uh brazil and let's head over to uh belgium because uh, they're one of the big stories on our list is the Belgian UFO wave. And coincidentally, we're right at the 30-year mark of it. So 30 years later, they still don't know what really happened during the Belgian UFO wave. Now, at first, the witnesses claimed all you noticed were the lights. <clears throat> they were so bright you could read them. So brilliant that a policeman described them as like lights on a huge football field. Only gradually did you notice the object they did you notice the object they emitted from a hulking triangular shaped with three enormous spotlights pointing toward the ground and a red flashing light at its center. The whole thing recalled the policeman as if barely able to believe it himself was floating in the air. It was a clear November night in 1989 near the town of Eupen, Belgium, which sits seven miles from the German border. Heinrich Nickel, the policeman and his partner, Hubert von Montigny, called their dispatcher to report the object they stumbled upon while on a routine patrol. Now suddenly, they told me they were seeing a strange object in the sky. Albert Kreutz, who was on the receiving end, told Unsolved Mysteries in 1982, It made no noise. We joked about it and said it might be Santa Claus trying to land. Now, by the time the evening was over, at least 30 different groups and three separate pair of police officers would allege to have seen the unidentified flying object. And if they wouldn't, and they wouldn't be the last. Belgium's months-long UFO wave culminated 30 years ago today. But that was last month. In physics, defying chase through the skies over Europe as two Belgian Air Force F-16s pursued mysterious objects on the radars as they couldn't even see. But, okay, did aliens really visit Belgium? It certainly seems deeply, deeply likely. Yet three decades later, it's still hard to entirely dismiss the 2,000-odd sightings that took place in the county between November of 89 and April of 90. Patrick Farron, the president of the Belgian Committee for the Study of Space Phenomena, told The Telegraph, you must know that most of these sightings will have the most banal explanation. But there is residual, which we simply can't explain. And those, there may be two or three where we may have questions over where they came from. Yeah, again, we get it. Hot air balloon or weather balloon. Another weather balloon. Lots can be ruled out, though. For example, a classic photograph of the triangle-shaped aircraft known as the Petit Richain picture is without a doubt a hoax, is what some claim. A forger admitted as much when he came forward in 2011. Now, regardless, where things really start to get strange is in March of 1990. At that point, there had been months of sporadic sightings throughout Belgium, including one by an army colonel, André Amand, who claimed to have seen lights while driving in his car with his wife in December. The Belgian military, needless to say, was well aware of the descriptions pouring in from across the country, and it had little in the way of answers. Then, chief of operations of the air staff general, 
Wilfred D. Brower, who offered his account to the investigative reporter Leslie Keene for her 2010 book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, said that his initial belief was that American military must have been testing some sort of experimental aircraft over his country. He went as far as to file inquiries with the U.S. Embassy in Brussels, prompting the Americans to create a memo, dryly titled, Belgium and the UFO issue, which confirmed that no USAF stealth aircrafts were operating the area during the periods in question. The reports were credible enough, though, that Belgium's Air Force, Federal Aviation Authorities, and the police devised a plan to try and catch one of the unidentified intruders in action by preparing F-16s to quickly take off if a sighting was ever reported by both the police and a radar station at the same time. Sure enough, as de Brouwer recounts in the UFOs, the night came on March 30th when several policemen and two military radar stations spotted an unknown object. Once aloft, the Belgian pilots tried to intercept the alleged aircrafts and at one point recorded targets on their radar with unusual behavior such as jumping huge distances in seconds and accelerating beyond, beyond human capacity. But what's frustrating is the pilots never managed to see the object they were pursuing. After analysis of the aircraft readings, the Air Force decision was that the evidence was insufficient to prove that there were real crafts in the air on the occasion. De Brouwer reports, still, throughout 1990, the Air Force was asked and could never specifically pardon me, account for the sightings, which all told numbered in the thousands by the time they were quietly started going away again in April. Wow. That's a good one. Yeah, you know that those pilots, I would love to hear the, the audio from the, the pilot's cockpit. Right. I mean, that's got to be so insulting to the uh, to the pilots. Right. Because I'd be like, yeah, what? I was oh, so now I'm not competent enough to fly this and tell you what I reported of. Well, it's like, man, I just I wish I would have just kept it to myself. Because who knows what happens after that? Well, I mean, they get no credit at all. Like, they're scrambled. They had to be on, you know, 24-hour watch, sitting there in their shift, like, just in their uh, air suit, ready to go. They get up there. They they get radar on them. You know, they can see them bouncing around, and they're like, whoa, this thing's bouncing from one side of my radar to the other in a second. We, yeah. We can't see it. We don't have a visual on it. Right. We... We want we want to go weapons hot, and they're like, "Don't go weapons hot. You can't even see the thing." Yeah, it's pretty incredible because, <clears throat> you know, in in the United States, we will either convict somebody or put somebody to death or presume somebody is in. What's the word I'm looking? Innocent. I've had incident on the brain for so long. <laughs> innocent, based upon uh, their testimony or listening to testimony based on uh, people's eyewitness testimony. We're locking people up and killing them based off of just some random person saying they see something, but we can't trust pilots who you have to have the best vision in the world to even qualify for the program. Right. And they're telling you that this is what's going on up here. My radar is bouncing around all over the place. They get back down on the ground and the official word is, uh, it was insufficient. Yeah. Thank you for your service. It was insufficient. I just would just be standing there just blinking my eyes like, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, maybe we should take a, we'll take a trip up the uh, northeast coast here of the United States to old Shag Harbor. Oh, yeah. Steve, give us a little Shag Harbor. So the, the Shag Harbor incident continues to fascinate witnesses, UFO hunters, conspiracy theorists, and anyone who loves a good mystery. 
Exactly 52 years after an unidentified flying object crashed into the ocean nearby, a small but infamous Nova Scotia fishing village is still trying to explain what happened. Taking place off the coast of Shag Harbor in 1967, the event remains in the memories of witnesses. Residents and eyewitness Lori Wickens was a teenager at the time and has vivid recollections of the mysterious October night. We see four lights in the sky and over the land over there, she says, we thought it was a plane and never paid much attention to it. More or less, we were just watching the lights go on and off. Wickens and his pals continued to follow the UFO and its bright lights, and they weren't the only ones. Other residents, including an off-duty police officer, watched an object with orange-yellow lights go off and on in a sequence. It went across the road in front of us, behind the hill. We couldn't see it. We made it to the top of the hill, says Wickens. There was a light in the water. We went to the phone booth and called RCMP and reported a plane crash. Wickens says the bright object appeared to be floating one and a half miles, or no, one half mile from the shore, leaving a trail of yellow foam that folks watched as nearly an hour as it disappeared. The Canadian Coast Guard and fishing vessels sailed to the area to search for wreckage, but nothing was found. He said, I got no idea what it is. All I know is that it was something. <laughs> the incident referred... That's a, the totally an unidentified. Yeah. You can't identify it. The incident referred to as an unidentified flying object by the federal government sparked a slew of reports and articles and conspiracy theories over the years. So much interest remains for the case that the Royal Canadian Mint released a coin commemorating the Shag Harbor UFO incident quickly selling out online they were cool i wish i had one. Oh, me me too i love i think uh collecting money is very cool definitely the credibility of the witnesses is just amazing for this one says royal canadian mint project manager krista bruce we have witnesses from the military we have pilots who were witnesses to this event local mil- local police officers and residents alike like laurie and his friends so this is a great story to tell. In memory of the incident, the town plays host to an annual Shag Harbor UFO festival, bringing in thousands of visitors to the UFO museum every year. And many locals have a personal connection, including Leonard Nickerson, whose mother went to, into labor with him on the night of the incident. He said, they tease me and tell me that I'm not from this planet. As the stories and the theories continue to pile up, Wickens doesn't know if he'll ever find out what happened, but he's confident somebody knows the truth. I don't think it's a UFO, says Wickham, but whatever it is, the government knows and they're just not telling us. The annual Shag Harbor UFO Festival took place all weekend long. That's pretty awesome. I mean, there again, we have police officers telling you what they saw not one not two but multiple now if you and i were fighting for our life in the court of law and a a slew of police officers came up to the stand and were like yep that's what i saw right there that you'd be done for yep but if you say that you saw something that you can't eat on a see that's almost what you have to say anymore like well i didn't 
I saw a UFO. People are like, oh, yeah. Big, like, I saw something crazy in the sky. Well, what was it, a UFO? But I don't know. I don't know what it was. <laughs> because as soon as you say UFO, people are like, oh, he thinks he saw aliens. No. Just identified. Or the new one is just an unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAP. That's what the government seems to be sticking with right now. I've definitely heard some officials say that term. So, okay. Moving on to the next incident. We got one that's in, that's called the Val Johnson incident. Now, what happened to the Marshall County cop who hit a UFO? Now, at 1.40 a.m., 36 years ago, Marshall County Sheriff Deputy Val Johnson was on the night patrol along a rural section of State Highway 220 near Warren, Minnesota, when he drove into a ball of white light. I noticed a very bright, bright light, 8 to 12 inches in diameter, 3 to 4 feet off the ground, Johnson said in a taped police interview. The edges were very defined. Pardon me. Johnson drove toward the light and woke up in a ditch a half hour later with burns around his eyes. The windshield and one of his headlights of his 1977 Ford LTD were smashed. Both radio antenna were bent sharply back. The watch on his wrist and the clock on the dash both ticked 14 minutes slow. The incident turned Johnson into a local legend and national media sensation. And years later, people are still talking about it like subtle beast. Johnson's squad car is preserved in the Marshall County Museum with a plaque that says UFO car. People still come from miles around to see it. It's an annual display at the Marshall County Fair. Sometimes former Marshall County Sheriff Dennis Breck gives talks at the museum about the car and the night his deputy drove it into a ball of light. Police investigated and never drew any conclusions, but the incident's enduring fame has lingered far beyond Marshall County. Now, what's known as the Val Johnson incident remains one of the top 10 most influential UFO encounters in history. Now, paranormal TV shows like UFO Files and Mysteries of the Museum filmed reenactments. Even now, people debate on the legitimacy of the encounter on some online forums. It was an extraordinary, important case. Plenty of people had strange experiences on back roads at late night. But very few of them yield any tangible evidence. Fewer still are ever investigated. But one thing is strikingly absent from the small town museum. The TV shows an online discussion, Val Johnson. When you try to track down Val Johnson, people tend to say he's hard to find, that he's still haunted by what happened to him 36 years ago. A 2013 Pioneer Press article said, Johnson quickly grew tired of interviews after the incident and is believed now to live somewhere in Wisconsin. Sheriff Breck's wife, Louise, said Johnson hasn't kept in touch with his old colleagues in Marshall County for three decades, aside from a letter he sent a few years back with no return address. As it turns out, Johnson isn't that hard to find. He lives in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and he answers his phone. And at the first mention of UFO, and he laughed loud. It's unexplainable and will remain so. I'm happy with my mental stability, said Johnson. People don't call about that anymore, he said. It becomes readily apparent that the details of the Val Johnson incident, still enthralling UFO enthusiasts, just don't fascinate Johnson. I looked up at the sky and said, well, shucks, what happened? Johnson recalled, and then I shuffled on with my life. He had small kids to raise back then, and hitting a ball of light and ending up in a ditch wasn't close to the most important thing going on in his life. For almost a year after the incident, his phone hardly ever stopped ringing. He's quoted at the time by the Associated Press writer Barbara Dewar 
Barbara Dewey saying that his wife was one run ragged by constant calls. He appeared on Good Morning America and in dozens of newspapers across the country. For a while, he was a very big deal. I'm a really big deal. <laughs> and then other stories came along and pushed me off the front page, he said. Thank goodness. Johnson stayed on as deputy for a while after the incident, and then he took a job as chief of police in a nearby town of Oslo, Minnesota. Locals, he said, never questioned his ability to enforce the law. But in 1982, he was hired to set up the Roseau, Minnesota Police Department, but lost the job less than a year later over a funding dispute. Once you're chief of police and you get fired, he said, you're unhirable. He was working as a security guard in the Twin Cities Mall when a friend got him a job answering customer service line at 3M. He asked me how I like to take 60 angry phone calls a day. I said, dang, I can do that. For years, people sometimes showed up on his front porch with theories about his experience in Marshall County. We'd sit in the backyard with lemonade and talk, he said. They'd tell me what they thought happened to me, and I'd nod at the appropriate times. Eventually, they'd just go away. Now, Johnson is now 71. Now, he has a short white beard and thinning white beard. He's retired, still living in Eau Claire with his wife, Roseanne. No one has stopped by in years. No one calls about the UFOs, even when his name airs on television. He has great-grandchildren. To this day, Johnson won't speculate on what happened to him in 1979. He doesn't think the light he saw was an extraterrestrial, but also won't rule out the possibility. For years, he said, it just hadn't crossed his mind. I saw a ball of light, he said. I drove toward it, and suddenly it was in the car with me. It's unexplainable, and it will remain so. I'm happy with my mental stability. If it seems Johnson's ambivalence could cast some doubt on the famous incident, those passionate about UFOs are unfazed. Clark said it's textbook UFO encounter, copying mechanism, coping mechanism. Clark talked to scores of people involved in UFO encounters for his books. Some became obsessed with what happened to them. Some plunged into denial. Others, he said, found peace, refusing to allow an encounter to change their lives. If anything, Clark said, it was a story to tell at the bar, and that is that. I, that's my. I, I love this story, man. I do too. You know, you just picture like this, you know, hardworking older guy. It's just like, well, this is what I saw. And if you don't believe me, that's fine. I don't know what it was, but that's just how it is. I mean, well, the, I, this was 1979, so this is way out of uh, the range of a lot of stories that you and I talk about. Right. This is uh, in, in the dis in the in the recent past. I was three. Right. But we were alive for it. I mean, yeah. most of the stuff we talk about is 40s and 50s, <clears throat> which is definitely, you know, far from where you and I are. But exactly. this guy, so he's, you know, my favorite part of this story is he's driving along. He sees this ball of light and drives at it. He's a, he's a cop. Yeah. He drives right at it. He's a savage. And then uh, he says, I drive towards the light. And then the light ended up in the car with me. Yeah, and even that, to the, I mean, that had to be petrifying, but still, he's just like, I don't know, it is what it is. The picture of this police cruiser reminds you of Roscoe P. Coltrane oh, yeah. from the Dukes of Hazzard. It's an absolute, here, I'll flip this around. Absolute amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the totally. police cruiser. Uh, it's just a fantastic story. I really like that one. Yeah, I mean, heck, man, if people haven't been bothering this guy and stopping by, when the world gets back to normal, maybe we'll have to do that. Go go talk to him. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure he'd love that. I'm sure he would. <laughs> I just want to see him just nod, nod along and just be like, all right, we've had enough. 
So along with that 1979, I've got one here from December 29th of 1980. This one's called the Cash Landrum UFO Incident. Yes. A UFO sighting on the evening of December 29th in 1980 changed the lives of three Texans forever and not for the good. While driving through the southern tip of East Texas Piney Woods, north of Houston, Betty Cash, Vicki Landrum, and Vicky's seven-year-old grandson, Colby, came upon a huge diamond-shaped object just above the trees and 130 feet away. Cash hit the brakes, and she and the elder Landrum stepped outside. Immediately, they noticed intense heat. Their faces felt as if they were burning. When Vicky re-entered the car and touched the dashboard to steady herself, she left a handprint. Blasting fire and heat, the UFO slowly ascended. Suddenly, numerous helicopters, 23 in all, appeared from all directions, positioning themselves near the strange craft. By the time the witnesses were back in the car and watching this spectacular event happen, other motorists saw the object, and helicopters from different, more distant locations were coming. Eventually, the flying objects were lost to view. Unfortunately, the episode was only the beginning. Back home, the three felt sick. Cash most severely. She suffered blisters and nausea, headaches, diarrhea, loss of hair, and reddening of her eyes. On January 3rd, unable to walk and nearly unconscious, she was admitted to the Houston hospital. Vicky and Colby were experiencing the same symptoms, though less severely. The witnesses' health problems continue to this day. In 1991, Cash's personal physician, Dr. Brian McClellan, told the Houston Post that her condition was a textbook case of radiation poisoning, comparable to being three to five miles from the epicenter of Hiroshima. For years, the three have pursued their cases through the courts, seeking answers, but none given. Official agencies deny any knowledge of the incident, even though the helicopters have been identified as twin-rotor Boeing CH-47 Chinooks, used by both Army and Marines. This one's got a picture, too. This picture of the burn on her hand yeah, looks nasty. It does. I mean, you can look up, if you want to look up, like, Vicki Landrum, um, and Betty Cash, and you can see pictures of uh, the injury to the hand. It, I mean, it just looks like a severe burn. And I got to go along with the theory of, the, of radiation. Now, if there's anything that we've learned over the course of the last two, three months, is that no matter what country you're in, your, go- your government lies to you on a regular basis. So in this day and age that we're living in right now, these stories have more credibility, I think, than at any time. Uh, even probably when they happened because people were just like back then it was like oh no you know government will take care of us you know they or they just don't know or they told us it's a weather balloon and but now i mean i've had some people that have told me that my thoughts on the current affairs of the world were crazy only to receive uh text messages weeks later that said all right you were right and we're ready to you know make some noise with you but uh yeah so that's why we do what we do we try and keep people informed on the information that's being hidden from us on a daily basis. Uh, you know, me and Steve have been talking about some of these things for years, and uh, 
you know, to see some of the things come to light, you know, one would think that there's some type of gratification that comes along with, with talking about things that come to light. No, just, just contrary to the, uh, just the opposite is, uh, it's scary. So, but not like this, the UFO incidents, I think are, are so much fun to discuss. Um, people always think, Oh, well, what if they attack? Well, if they, if they wanted to rid us of this planet, they would have done so. It would have been game, set, match years ago. I don't know that they necessarily mean you harm, but uh, if you look at the last two stories here, the there there is harm that was done. I mean... Unintentional, maybe. Right. If they're interstellar beings and they're flying a craft and uh, you get near it, there is a good chance. And this, this is a story, you know, the storyline that repeats itself. There is radiation poisoning that happens to humans who go up to any craft that's or a meteorite, right? Or, or a meteorite. So, and, 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 but the, but humans are always drawn to it. If you see a UFO, you're somehow drawn to it. You have that question burning in your soul where you're thinking, what is that? I have to get closer to it and see it. And that's precisely it. I mean, in none of these cases is ever, I mean, everybody always just assumes, like we said, that it's just extraterrestrial. However, in the case of the radiation burns, it could have been some country's government that tried to back engineer, but doesn't have the technology or the propulsion system. So they're using some type of, uh, you know, power plant or radioactive propulsion and these people got too close to it, and they had an effect to it. There's stories about that of a UFO that was leaking all kinds of radioactive material in Mexico. We covered on one podcast, and people were getting cancer and dying, and it burns all over their body. And people were actually suing the government. Well, you think anything ever came of that? Who knows? Because it's always so hush-hush. I mean, hopefully, at least their medical bills were paid for, but with the government, I doubt it. But I digress. Uh had fun tonight. I love talking about UFOs as always. Steve always likes to say after a show, regardless of topic, well, faults, you seem to do it again. You worked in ETs. I don't know how you did it on a show about martial law. Right. You're able to, you're able to do it, but we like to keep it lighthearted and fun, but we also like to keep what we believe as to be the facts and, uh, just get, get the information out to you. But we believe that we've had enough heartache for a while, so we just wanted to get some good old UFO and get back to our roots tonight. It was good, too. And it was fun. And uh, we got a lot of good things coming down the pike, so uh, stay tuned. And until next time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. We'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.